Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Fill Your Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me as always... Catherine! And this week we are back in order to discuss, oh, perhaps one of the most inconsistent blockbuster filmmakers of the last 25 years. And that, of course, is M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, specifically, his most recent theatrical release, the relatively small-budgeted um, but reasonably successful Old. Um, the the story of Old is is sort of its central conceit. It has a sort of, uh, I would say, a clever premise. I'm not going to say a good premise, but it is at the very least clever. Um, it has a, a sort of interesting hook. Um, the it's, basic it's a him synopsis, movie. It's a Shyamalan uh, movie. It is a Shyamalan film, through and through. <laughs> um, and, and you know, we'll get into it. But I think it sort of was doing an interesting thing until the end, where Shyamalan, who has seemed to push back against what he's known for um, over the last, you know, 10 years or so, seems to have just embraced it now to be like, ah, let's lean into um, the twist, uh, because there must be one, even if that twist is super obvious and really unimportant. But uh, so this film, uh, straightforwardly enough, is about a family, uh, a husband, a wife, their two kids, who seemingly get an incredible deal on a resort vacation that comes at the perfect time. Um, they're struggling as a family, at least the, the mother and father are, um, they're while they're staying there. They're about to get a there. divorce. That's right. They have decided that they no longer want to be together. That's um, things have happened in the family and, and it's driving them apart and they are going on one last sort of family trip before they break the news to their children. Which, which is super weird. I don't know any married couple about to get a divorce who would do this, who would say like, let's, let's go spend a week together. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very movie premise, yeah. right? It, it is a, it is a movie premise that does not really touch on real life. And, and as much as we can talk about Shyamalan's sort of nebulous grip on reality when it comes to his films, many of them, especially his most successful ones, at least on the surface, tend to have that sort of cinema verite quality, right? This feels like it's happening now to people who could feasibly exist, even if they are <laughs> sort of like archetypal paper-thin versions of real people. Um, but he's always sort of tread within that ground of like, this is the world and the world is real and... This one, it, it strains against that, um, not in ways that you're not experienced with if you've watched other Shyamalan films, but yeah, there's just some strange things that are put in place to set up other things in the movie rather than, oh, this is a kind of natural place to start. Um, so the, the premise, however, expands. The, the couple is then offered while they're on the resort to go to a special beach. Um, a sort of secluded place where they can have a lovely day together. There'll be food provided. They'll take them in by van. Um, but when they arrive at this beach, even though it is idyllic and sort of beautiful and perfect, something is wrong. And uh, that's sort of really where the plot kicks in. So um, let's, let's talk a bit about Shyamalan, because we have had, over the course of our movie lives, um, sort of many phases to our relationship with M. Night Shyamalan, if we can put it that way. I know I know, I have. I don't want to speak for you necessarily, but I can say pretty unequivocally that early on 
in Shyamalan's career, he was probably the most exciting director of his upcoming generation um, by a strong margin, right? Like um, he hit the ground running, obviously, with uh, Sixth Sense, a film that sort of continued to, I'll go ahead and say, rescue Bruce Willis's career. Um, he had obviously had some good movies in the 90s. Fifth Element had certainly buoyed Bruce Willis's success. That was pretty niche. Yeah, he had sort of fallen into this strange place as an action film star. And so, as most good actors will attempt to do, they sort of try to break out of that by taking projects that you wouldn't expect. So he takes The Sixth Sense. The Sixth Sense explodes. Um, It is built upon Shyamalan's first, and I will go ahead and say his best, twist ending. Um, It's, it was great. I I saw it in the theater. It was one of the first movies I went to see in the theater by myself, mm-hmm. um, which was really exciting. So I have like this great memory of the first time I saw The Sixth Sense yeah. and feeling like I knew that a twist was coming, but then still being sort of gobsmacked by it anyway. Right. Um, and the careful construction of the film itself to both justify and mask said twist. Um because it's truly the, I mean, it does what usual suspects did without having to show you the entire film again in brief to remind you of what the film did. And that's what made it so exceptional. And um, it immediately and to, drew all of the, the Hitchcock comparisons because it's like a, you know, Alfred Hitchcock was so famous for showing you everything that you needed to put the story together. Mm-hmm. but he was going to let you do it. Um, right. Yeah, you you were the one who put the pieces into place. He let you be Poirot, right? Yeah. You had to click all the pieces together, and then that gives you this amazing revelatory moment. And and it it was at the time, and, and still remains to this day. If you are a person that has never seen The Sixth Sense, I find that hard How, to believe. That's not or possible. It, you know, that's like going to see Star Wars and being truly surprised when he says, I am your father, right? It's like, well... Can you imagine what that mm, must have been like? Oh, I mean, there's... A, I mean, most people forget that most of the movie-going populace just assumed he was lying, right? Like, he was just screwing with him, basically, um, because they, it was an unbelievable twist, right? It's like, there's no way that this is the He's truth. the bad guy. Right. And so, you know, it, it was that kind of thing. So so Shyamalan, you know, he he brings out the sixth sense. It's it's a, a smash success, like an unbelievable success. Um, I mean, the budget was like in the 40 million range. It was a super low budget. I mean, like basic, I would assume half the budget was just Bruce Willis, like almost guaranteed. <laughs> and and it makes like 700 million worldwide like those are that those are numbers that you know in terms of of investment versus return that's like paranormal activity money that's Blair Witch money that's uh original Halloween money right like that is that is an unbelievable debut to to have be the film that puts you on the map so everybody's talking about it Hollywood doors are flinging open as fast as they can Suited men in cigars are sprinting to the front doors of their high-rise offices and screaming Shyamalan's name into the street, offering him money. And and surprisingly, he doesn't really 
go nuts with it. Um, I, I, well, I say within his film work, but I believe that this is unfortunately that experience is what started the sort of downward slide because I mean, and I can't imagine being this of having, you know, like time magazine covers that, that say this is the next Hitchcock, right? Like those comparisons came hard and, and strong and fast and they may have just been a little bit too much. (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, Hitchcock, I mean, you've got to remember Hitchcock had been making movies for 15 years, you know, in England and early days of American cinema and, and really was, wasn't till like mid career that he found explosive success with movies yeah. like rear window and psycho and, and, uh, the birds, Vertigo. you know, like that's in vertigo, right? Like that's, that's kind of, he was an established sort of, you know, I know what I'm doing filmmaker. Now Shyamalan had done his student film, you know, which I've seen clips of on YouTube. It's fine. I mean, it's, it's a, a drama, um, he had done another one called Wide Awake before The Sixth Sense, which was one of those Rosie O'Donnell vehicles. Yeah. Um, back Didn't in the get late released 90s. Until after The Sixth Sense came out, I think. Exactly. Or right like, before, maybe. It was it was basically shelved um because why? Like, you know, what is what is this movie gonna be? But he both wrote and directed that. It eventually came out and and you know, whatever. It was it was whatever it was going to be. But the sixth sense was the movie that he was known for. Nobody was looking back to be like, Hey, let's take a look at this wide awake film. (laughs) Rosie O'Donnell's hot, you know, like no, nothing like that was going on. And so then he makes, I'll I'll go ahead and say arguably my favorite M. Night Shyamalan film, which is unbreakable. It's it's so Um, good. Yeah. And I don't care what anybody says. I know a lot of people don't like that movie. A lot of people do not like unbreakable. A lot of people. Those people are dumb. It's a I'll great fir- movie. I'll be the first to admit that Unbreakable is an incredibly slow burn. Yeah. But the but payoff. The, the payoff, payoff is, is really good. <laughs> it's really good. And uh, it too had a, a sort of twist, although the twist was backgrounded. It was a, a secondary component of the overall story being told. So I, you know, I'll allow it. Um <laughs> But but then it just continues, right? So he makes Unbreakable again. Uh, he Bruce Willis is in that one as well. We've obviously seen that character and some of the stories come back in in some recent Shyamalan movies as well. Um, but Unbreakable is is an incredible film. It is one of the best superhero origin stories uh, ever put to film, and that's and and this is you know twenty years before we would see them on the regular. Um, if anything, I feel like that movie was just a failure of marketing because they wanted to hide what it was. I mean, again, this yeah. is a time when superhero films were not successful. Like, Nobody not, will go see this in the theater. <laughs> right. This is this is two years before this the Speedermans would change everything. Um, X-Men had been a success. Maybe that's why they chose to go with it. I, I think mostly it was just on the strength of the sixth sense. Like they were just willing to whatever you want to do, kid, let's do it. Um but if they had sold it as what if Superman was alive and didn't know that he was Superman, I think a lot more people would have gone to see it. Um, but regardless, unbreakable, very good. Then he does signs with Mel Gibson, which I this think is um, where I fell off the M night Shyamalan train. Yeah. Um, it's weird. There are, you know, like we've talked about little pockets of fandoms, you know, like the, 
like the Nolan trilogy, you can kind of tell a lot about what kind of Batman fan you are based on whether <laughs> you like Batman Begins or The Dark Knight. Um, I'm very much a Batman Begins guy, whereas a lot of people are Dark Knight people. I don't um, like Dark I'm Knight I'm going to ride much. hard with 1989 Batman and Final <laughs> Answer Regis. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Sure. This is the only Batman you need. Um, but so like... The science fans, I think, are are very much more into Shyamalan's atmosphere than they are about the stories that he's telling. Because Signs is where I think on the plot level, his stories begin to sort of not work as well. Um, but it's got hella good atmosphere and some yeah. really good jump scares. Um, it just know, those, unfortunately has Mel Gibson in it. That it, it does taint it. But, <laughs> By I'm not a huge Mel a Gibson fan in the first place. No, and I just yeah, didn't. True. I didn't really like. I don't know. The movie just rubbed me the wrong way. Um, it's it's very. I don't know. It, it, Shyamalan's films really like to deal with sort of personal and ethical struggles. You know, like every every main character in a Shyamalan film is going to come to some kind of like moral or ethical quandary that they're going to have to deal with. Um, which is, is good, right? Like from a character standpoint, you want your main character to struggle through a difficult choice and then come out the other side, you know, hopefully better for it. But signs, it really was his first time, first time that I think he was dealing with something that he, I think he thinks a lot about, but doesn't really incorporate into a lot of his films. And that is a sort of spiritual side of things, a sort of faith connection. And, and I think a lot of that stuff, either because he didn't want to sort of go too far in one direction or the other, or because he just wanted to keep it simple for audiences, I think he just kind of drops the ball on that character's will I or won't I in regards to belief and faith and reality, etc. It's it's an interesting parallel to make a sci-fi UFO alien story the thing that reinvigorates a man's belief in God. Like I can, I can see in, in Shyamalan's mind being like, oh it's a twist, you know, like I can see it, <laughs> but it wasn't <laughs> but any good. <laughs> it doesn't really work. Right. It just that, that end place where he's sort of putting on his Episcopal Episcopalian minister column and, or collar and just sort of walking out of his bedroom. I never bought that. I was like, no, I don't think that's where that would go, but whatever. Uh, it's an okay movie The it's a little bit too set up. And I know we talk a lot about setup and payoff and how that's a good thing, but that movie is the ultimate, like, set up and payoff vehicle where there are a bunch of just nonsensical things that happen in the first part of the movie that are then paid off at the end of the movie because they have to be yeah. not because they're justified. It's just like, Oh, I put this in here. The little girl never can drink a full glass of water because it's dusty. So there's water everywhere. And our aliens are hydrophobic. <laughs> you know, like that kind of stuff is like, okay, okay. All right. You're, you're pushing it. Um, it's fine. It works. It's solidly executed, but it's not satisfying. But um, then the next movie he made, I felt uh, pushed things way too far. I, I remember yeah. I was dragged to see this with a group mm -hmm. of friends. And, and that's what, to, and that, and we got to remember that was Shyamalan's movies at the time. Yeah. It was the type of movie that you got into a big group. So that you could all experience it at the same time and then have conversations about it. Yeah. He was that kind of moviegoer, um, which I don't think his current movies occupy that same space, which is but a little sad. With The Village from 2004, it took me 15 minutes. And I was like, this is this is the twist. 
Yes. And I was like, I really hope that's not it. I hope it's mm-hmm. something else. I hope it's not what I think it is. And I spent the rest of the movie going like, please don't let that be it. And then that right. was it. I was right. That was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I, that, whereas I have this wonderful memory of seeing the sixth sense and being like, no fucking way <laughs> um, right. with the village. I remember a similar expletive. But different emotion, like no fucking way. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, same phrase, but we're in a very different space for sure. And and you know, if you look critically at the reaction to his films, that is the beginning of the end. Signs was Signs did fine. It sort of hung with the rest of. It also has a weird cult following. People who who really love Signs now. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. Which is fine. Um, I think it also touches on a subgenre of film that we don't get a ton of, which are like small scale alien invasion stories, you know, not war of the worlds, but like the guy in his house in the forest (laughs) struggling against an alien and the guy Um, in his house. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Oh God. I I actually tried to watch war of the worlds the other day and the first part of that movie is fine, but man, it goes downhill. Takes a sharp turn. God, that's a rough. I mean, for somebody as capable as Spielberg, and the movie looks fine and the camera's good, but the story is just so bananas and so. I still maintain Um, the biggest problem with that movie is Tom Cruise. I don't buy um, him as dad. I don't buy him as an everyman. Yeah. I I fight with that identity through the whole film. I'm like, this isn't you. This isn't you at all. Yeah, I love how he just like slathers a Boston baseball cap on his head. Douchebag doctor from Eyes Wide Shut. I buy that. That felt Mm -hmm. like Tom Cruise. (laughs) Yeah, this is Tom Cruise. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's it's weird. But so the village, uh, we rewatched that one recently (sighs) and divorced from the hype because I had not watched it since it came out. I, I saw it once in the theater and I was like, eh, okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, divorced from the hype and just sort of revisiting it. I think it's, it's actually pretty strong given where Shyamalan has gone. Um, (laughs) it's not that bad considering how much worse it was about to get. (laughs) Considering how much worse things get. It's, it's actually pretty good. I, I really like the cinematography in the village. I think the village is probably one of his best looking films which absolutely has everything to do with the fact that Roger Deakins shot it. Mm. Um, and, and there is not a frame that Roger Deakins has shot in his life. That is not brilliant um, and beautiful in its own way. I think the colors in that movie work exceptionally well. I think the beast um, or the concept of the beast as explored in that film works incredibly well. The problem is, is that the story being told is, <laughs> the is problem predictable is the plot and, and all of the characters. <laughs> Um, I will say that I'm very glad that it exists because it did give us, you know, sort of Bryce Dallas Howard's first starring turn. And I like Bryce Dallas Howard a lot. I'm very, I'm I'm much more excited now about Bryce Dallas Howard as a feature film director than I am as a, as an actor, even though she is still, you know, she's going to be in the new Jurassic Park, whatever movie, you know, and stuff. But um, I think she's a really exciting director who is, is poised to take the mantle from, her father, who I also think is one of the one of the more underrated directors um, to come out of like eighties Hollywood, um, Ron Howard is is not a flashy director, but he's extremely solid and he's very dependable. And I think Bryce Dallas Howard is poised to sort of exceed him 
in in skill. And so, but anyway, it gave us her, and I think her performance in it is fine, although I do not buy that she is blind at any point um, in that movie. Uh, like, it just doesn't... <laughs> I don't know. She just doesn't read as blind. I think it would have been a much better choice to have an actual blind actor lead that movie. But um, that's always a better choice. It's it's rough. Um, You're gonna have someone who's who's got any sort of of disability or or challenge in their life. Please just hire a person who actually has that. Just do it. It's so much easier. Going- if you're going for some degree of verisimilitude, and that's the second time I've used that word in a Nim Night Shyamalan podcast, <laughs> so that's hilarious. Um, I, I think it's a better choice. Uh, she does fine with it, and there's no point that I can, no point in the film that I can look at and be like, "Ah, oh, this is just bad." It's just more of the sense about her, and I know she's supposed to like know the environment so well that she can move capably through it without needing to see because it's this small community and she grew up there. Blah blah blah. But it's it just doesn't you know the the climax of the village is about a blind girl going into a forest that she's never been to alone, ostensibly being chased by a monster, and then traversing parts unknown. Um, even though there are many many sighted people who would be better at that <laughs> yeah. than than she would be. But it's again it's it's one of those things where he's so into his premise. And he's so into the basic sort of thrust of his narrative that he can't see any other way to get through it. And and so when you're watching it, you know, the the modern thing is for somebody to be like, oh, it's a plot hole. You know, it's the the meme of Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the TV. He's like, she didn't, somebody else could have done that, you know, or whatever. But yeah. um, it's even watching it today, I was like, man, this, they're, they're, there had to have been another solution to this. <laughs> There's another than, way. <laughs> than trusting this this very capable and very awesome but blind girl to travel through a forest full of danger alone and and bring back medicine, which the film completely skips over the return journey, which I yeah. just love. We spend 20 minutes with her out in that forest fumbling around and then the way back, which theoretically would be just as dangerous we don't see that it's all fine but we can but, assume it went fine <laughs> yeah it was all good um but uh, so sidebar into you know talking about um actually hiring blind actors for blind parts um i, I know we've briefly talked about this but i'm going to say it here again because i'm i'm so excited but star trek strange new worlds streaming now on paramount plus third episode just aired this week as an old school Star Trek fan, right? And that's and it's important I preface it with this because I don't hate new Star Trek. I understand that new Star Trek is being designed for different audiences than poor, sad teenage nerds who laid on an uncomfortable couch in a trailer watching reruns of TNG after the 930 news. But and that's fine. And my I've got my kids are into it and I'm I'm totally cool with it. But Strange New Worlds is for me (laughs) it's it's for me again it's star trek for me the guy who loved the fact that star wars was syndicated that i could just drop in and i could watch an episode from season three 
one day and then I could watch an episode from season six the next. And yeah, I noticed that Riker's beard was a little different. They'd updated the uniforms with the little, you know, they had the, the waistbands instead of being unitards now. Like, of course you would see that, but each episode was its own standalone little tasty microcosm with characters who were awesome at their jobs, doing cool things and exploring the galaxy and finding new alien races, you know, some new little piece of shit on their nose to make them look like an alien race. And it's just, it's great. Uh, it's uniformly great. I think it's some of the best Trek that's been made in literal years, um, like decades even perhaps. And I'm loving it. I, I love it. I watch it and I'm, it's just like a meal. It's like a full meal mm-hmm. and I feel complete after I've eaten it. It's just like, yes, more <laughs> please. But they have on Strange New Worlds, they got a, an engineer. It, it's not Scotty yet. Um, Scotty obviously isn't a part of it yet. Um, but they have this um, engineer who, I think his name is Hatter. He just got introduced in the second episode right at the end. Um, but he is a um, an Anar, right? So, like, not an Andorian, but the, the alien species that, like, shares. Um, they're, like, the subspecies of the Andorians. So, instead of being blue-skinned, they're white-skinned. Mm-hmm. So he's an Anar and he is blind. And they actually hired a blind actor to play the part. Oh, good. And it is phenomenal because like that same thing we were talking about, like he knows the enterprise backwards and forwards. He moves around without assistance, but the actor himself is blind. So his, his movements, his head movement, it's, it's a performance by a person who truly knows what it means to move through the world as a blind individual. And man, he's, as far as I know, he's the first blind actor to ever be in Star Trek. I think there might've been a side character, you know, but like Jordy LaForge was blind, but of course he had the visor that gave him full sight. So he could, you know, he basically was a sighted character and LeVar Burton of course was sighted. So that's, that's all fine. But this is just, I, it was just, it's really cool. And it's one more really cool thing in a show that, quite frankly is really fucking cool um just i'm just loving it i i have zero reservations in recommending it especially if you are an old school trek fan if if an idea of a pleasant day at home when you're taking off work because you're sick or maybe you're not sick but you just want to lay on the couch and fuck around and if your idea of fun is being like let's go through season four of tng then this show is for you because <laughs> it's for me. Um, but in any case, like um, that's the kind of stuff that I think um, Shyamalan, it's those little bits that he just kind of misses sometimes. Many times. Um, so the village, the beginning of the downward slide for sure. Uh, that slide was solidified for most people with his next film, 2006's lady in the water. Uh, where he also brought back Bryce Dallas Howard. Um, but I don't hate Lady in the Water like some people do. Uh, I completely get why they do uh, this. If, if you're unaware of the film, and you very well may be, this is not one that gets thrown around as like a hidden Shyamalan gem. <laughs> um, the story focuses on a young like water nymph who comes to this apartment complex in Pittsburgh. Narf. Because, yeah, <laughs> Narf. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, again, the the legend around this is that it's a story that he was telling his kids for a bedtime story. And I, I'm not going to get into that. I don't. I think that's nobody cares. Bullshit. <laughs> I think that's bullshit. But whatever. Um, but this narf uh, comes <laughs> to this pool in Pittsburgh, because if you don't know all of Shyamalan's movies, unless expressly stated, take place in Pittsburgh, because that's where he's from. Um, she comes to find a writer who is going to write a thing that's going to change the world. She's going to provide him with the inspiration that he needs to write his, uh, it's what the cookbook. Isn't that what it's called? Oh God. Um, anyway, and Shyamalan appears in all of his films. It's another sort of Hitchcock quality of his Hitchcock appears in all of his movies in these little cameos, you know, very famously in the birds, he's walking a pair of his poodles out of the bird shop at the beginning. You know, he, he shows up. Well, Shyamalan's had similar cameos in all of his films. He was in signs as like a neighbor who had already fought off one of the aliens. Uh, he was in Unbreakable. What was he in that? He was one of the. He was he, at the, he was the comic book store employee, wasn't he? Uh, no, no, no. no. He, he was like a re, it was a really tiny role, but I don't remember what it was. Right. It, it, and that's typically what it was. And it was fine. Right. But in this one, he actually makes himself a character and he is the writer character who will change the world. And for most critics, that was kind of it. Yeah. Right? They were like, okay, we've given you enough leash here. It's a bit much. M night Shyamalan. You, you need to pull it back. And it didn't help that that movie also had a very strong anti-critical character. Um, he, he has a character in the film who is a movie critic and that movie critic while espousing criticism is murdered by one of the fantastic <laughs> creatures that is there. Um, and so I think a lot of critics might've taken that poorly because again, the critical slide on Shyamalan had already been in full swing prior to lady in the water and uh, lady in the water just sort of like, you know, it was the Jordan dunk at the end of the game <laughs> for the <laughs> critics to be like, Oh, we've won here. Um, and then somehow it continued to get worse um, with his next film, which I'm going to go ahead and say is one of the earliest films that I can remember being memed out of existence. Yeah. Super it's, early in internet culture. It, it's, and it's bad. It is as bad as the memes indicate. It's, mm -hmm. it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Um, and that, of course, is the Mark Wahlberg vehicle. Uh, the Happening, uh, which uh. came out in 2008. Now, Shyamalan has defended this film to the ends of the earth, saying that it was intended to be sort of his take on a bad 1950s sci-fi movie, you know, a la The Blob or, um, you know, just all of the like bad, creeping you know, existentialist horror films that came out in the fifties. But all of those things come across as, well, you just don't get it. And right. that is never a good stance to take on your creative work. <laughs> and I think a lot of it comes down to, I don't think Shyamalan really understands how to, how to do camp. Like yeah. I think in his mind, things that he sees as being campy and fun come across as serious. And sometimes that's good. Right. Sometimes that's a that's a good effect. Right. The the sort of, oh, it's so serious. It's actually kind of campy and funny. But Shyamalan, if he knows how to create that effect, he's not consistent enough with it for it to be truly seen as a technique of his, um, which gets further solidified with 
undoubtedly the least well-reviewed film in his entire filmography and one of the worst big budget films ever created. And this is coming from two people that just discussed Roland Emmerich's Moonfall, but last airbender is worst, uh, is worse than Moonfall, uh, because it is boring. Moonfall at least has moments where it's like, eh, you know, that thing exploded. That was cool. Uh, last airbender is a train wreck of a film from top to bottom. I didn't, um, I saw, I mean, the happening I've watched multiple times because times. like, yeah, if you're same. going to watch one of his movies that is bad, I sincerely recommend you watch the happening because it's terrible totally. and hilarious. Um, like I said, one of, one of the worst movies, it's also one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Right. Yeah. It certainly um, is the one that traverses the, it's all the, the circle to be so bad. It's actually kind of good. Right. But the last airbender, I made it about 10 minutes into the movie and like, I don't, I've never watched that show, so I Which don't know. Which I will anything. say again, absolutely do. Like the Last mm-hmm. Airbender is truly one of the best sort of American-produced animated series ah. in a, for a long time. Ah. Um, it has mo. It, it's not perfect all the way through. Some people say it is. I, I would disagree with that. But it has a, a wonderful through line. The characters are rich. The universe and the world that they build is, is interesting and unique. If if a bit sort of like heavily reliant on other tropey things that we've seen before, um, but it's it's well worth it. I, I do enjoy the Last Airbender. I can series. definitely see why people like it. Um, I think I saw part of an episode a long, long, long time ago, um, and it's. I mean, I have nothing against the show, but like, I just don't like. I don't know that world, so none of those characters mean anything to me. Um, mm-hmm. So watching the Shyamalan version was like, I don't, not only is this bad, but I have no idea what's going on. Right. Like, yeah, I don't one know. Of those, I don't yeah. have any context for this. <laughs> yeah. It was one of those shows. Well, like we talked about, you know, like the crimes of Grindelwald or one of the fantastic <laughs> beasts movie, right? Like to going to try to watch that without any context for what Harry Potter is. Watching I the last Airbender, a commentary track. <laughs> that, I'm totally down. Absolutely, we okay. I'm gonna put that on the schedule. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna do a bonus episode of Crimes of Grindelwald. Me having seen it multiple times and other Harry Potter shit, and then you being like, "What is this? <laughs> Who is this? <laughs> Who are you? What are you doing?" Um, yes, making notes. Okay, there we go. Um, but yes, watching the last airbender film, if you had no context for what the last airbender was, the film moved so quickly and explained so little of itself. Well, it had big exposition dumps, but it did nothing to sort of justify or, or expound upon anything. If you watched it without being a fan, you would be bewildered. Like you would have no idea what's happening. But if you watched it as a fan, it was so unsatisfying that it was to be enraging, right? Like I'm not seeing any of the things or moments or ideas that I want. It, but, so it was both a slavish adaptation, but a slavish adaptation that tried to do too much in a two hour time span. So just a disaster, uh, horrible, horrible, horrible reviews across the board from fans alike. And Shyamalan apparently really took that one hard. Like he thought that he had knocked it out of the park. And that's like the consistent story of Shyamalan that's surprising to me 
is he always thinks that he knocked it out of the people park. are really gonna love this one and and then when it doesn't he's he's surprised he's upset he's angry it, it's it's a very surprising thing because most people most filmmakers i think just like with any creative work you know when it ain't working yeah. right like you know like you've got that feeling you know it's it's the everybody sitting in the auditorium looking at the first rough cut of episode one and the lights come up and this is like for the behind the scenes documentary, the camera pans around and you can see Rick McCallum in the corner with his head in his hands and you can see Ben Burt just kind of with his eyes wide. And then even George Lucas goes like, well, I've kind of written myself into a mess. Haven't I? <laughs> like, you know, I think it might be bad. too much. <laughs> yeah. I think I've done too much. And it's, it's, it's just one of those things that. Shyamalan rarely seems to have that level of self-awareness with his films. Now, some people, you know, you've created creative work. You're going to believe in it. You're going to promote it. You're going to say, Hey, I did everything that I could do. I get that too. But there's, there's some real stinkers in here, man. Like last airbender is, is bad. Um, and his next film, unfortunately doesn't get any better. Um, now this, from what I understand, 2013's after earth was basically a work for hire gig. The project would had been developed. Um, it was intended to be a let's kick off the career of my annoying son on the part of Will Smith. Um, so the script was designed to be a showcase for Jaden Smith's, um, I guess we'll call it a- acting. Um, I guess we'll call it that. And I I follow the screenwriter of this, Gary Witta, on on yeah. social media, I've followed him for a long time. He was the editor of PC Gamer way back in the day, and I read that magazine religiously. Um, like I love Gary Witta, and Gary Witta has written some really cool shit. Uh, he original writer on Rogue One. He wrote Book of Eli. There are good ideas in After Earth, and and After Earth had potential as something, but what came out was bad. Um, I mean, any film that takes an actor as charismatic and interesting as Will Smith, because obviously we now exist in a sort of post Will Smith landscape. <laughs> I know, I know Will Smith will be back. Uh, stars of his caliber in Hollywood never stay dim for long. Although it's, I think it's going to take him a bit, um, post slap, but Will Smith, at, at his very least, is is one of the most charismatic and interesting actors to watch do his thing, right? If anything, his entire career is predicated on the fact that he's fun to watch do things on screen. And, and not much else, in a lot of ways. And that's okay. But to take that character, or take him, and then put it in a character who, by the very structure of the character, cannot express emotion, seems mm. ill-advised. Um, extremely so, and not in like a badass way, right? Not in a way that I'm so cool, but just in a way that's like, there's something wrong with you. And, and, and maybe that's just the difference and distinction that Shyamalan couldn't quite nab. Um, but anyway, so after earth is a disaster. It's, it's a fine movie. It's got some interesting visuals in it. Again, Shyamalan seemed to have been brought in because he was looking for basically an easy project to resurrect his career. That's the impression that I've gotten. And, you know, you attach yourself to a film with Will Smith that's going to be successful, right? Like Will Smith makes successful films, well, especially in 2013. And and it did not work out. 
And so then the way that the narrative paints it, then Shyamalan went away, right? He, he had to go learn his lesson. That's the way the narrative goes. But if you look at his filmography, M. Night Shyamalan has made a movie every two to three years since 2000. Mm-hmm. Religiously. Like, it's just what he does. He had a little bit of a break between Last Airbender and After Earth, because again, Last Airbender stung. But it was like three years. But it was three years, right? I mean, like, that's it. And and that was mostly because his, like, first look development deal with Touchstone fell apart after Last Airbender. Like, um, the happy, like, because he had a first look deal with Touchstone, which is basically like, you know, the adulting arm of Disney. And then that disintegrated. Then he had, like, a first look deal with Paramount. That disintegrated. Like, basically, like, all this, he was going through every studio in Hollywood and setting up new deals. And they all fell apart after one film because they were these disasters. And so like, I, I think the issue was he couldn't find anybody to pay for anything, right? It wasn't that he was out of ideas or he wanted to stop working. He couldn't find money. And so as some directors have learned, if you can't find money, go to the horror people mm-hmm. because there's always money for horror. Just like and there's always money in the banana movies. stand <laughs> and they love terrible movies but horror movies especially smartly budgeted horror movies M. Night Shyamalan is a is a is a golden egg to guys like Jason Bloom at Bloomhouse because he can market an entire movie being the next movie from M. Night Shyamalan and now when that movie costs 130 million dollars that may not get you your money back but when it costs five oh hell yeah you'll get $5 million of people to go watch the next movie from M night Shyamalan. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, so he makes a pseudo found footage. M night Shyamalan is not capable of making a found footage film. There's no way uh, he loves his camera moves too much to get of it, to give it over to a kid holding a camera running down an alleyway. It's not going to happen, but he makes a sort of pseudo found footage film, which at that point was still sort of sort of in vogue. And he makes the visit, um, which is a lovely little thing. Um, it's insubstantial. It's relatively low impact. Does have a few scares, has a naked old lady running around for a couple of scenes, which, you know, that'll get you some trailer credit. Um, and, it, and it was good. I remember seeing it and being like, that wasn't bad. Now, again, according to the Hollywood narrative, that's because M. Night Shyamalan learned his lesson, right? Hollywood came to bear and said, yo, M. Night, you're making shit. You need to go learn go how to not to make basics. shit anymore. Get back to the basics. And the narrative was so, so focused on that. Like every single review for the visit was like, wow, this is like M. Night Shyamalan going back to the basics. Going to make just a straightforward spooky movie just like he did back in the day never mind the fact that six cents had like a 40 million dollar budget as his first film like that movie was not cheap they knew what they had but whatever so he makes the visit it does exceedingly well right five million dollar budget hundred million dollar return jason blum's happy he buys another Ferrari and a third beach house. I don't know what Jason Bloom does with his money. I assume it's something like that. But he does okay. Then he makes Split, which I'm going to be honest. I really like Split. It was um, good. It's good. I, I think that 
Disassociative identity disorder is one of the most overused film tropes. And as a result, unfortunately, people have think they have a really good idea of what DID is. Um, and they don't. No. <laughs> and movies like this don't do much to help with that. Um, but as a, a interesting little sort of like single location horror flick. Or I don't even know if I'd call it a horror flick, but whatever. Um, it's good. Um, and as much money as the visit made split made more <laughs> like a lot more it's like a $10 million budget. I think maybe even less. And it made like $300 million. So rest assured M night Shyamalan doesn't need money, right? He, he, he's doing fine. So he keeps making movies because he wants to apparently, which I, I think is an important these are the distinction movies to he remember. Wants to make. He wants to make these movies. And so don't look at it as he's learned his lesson. Emily Shyamalan hasn't learned a goddamn thing. Yeah. Uh, not, not a thing. He is still the same guy making the same movies as he's always wanted to make. Um, with just as inconsistent a track record as he's always had. Which is where we'll get to when we talk about old here in just a moment. But I, I liked Split. And then, of course, at the end of Split, the reveal... As a huge Unbreakable fan, mm -hmm. was lovely. I wish it had ended there. Same. Um, I I wish that it had stopped with that, and we just knew that David was still out there kicking ass, being Unbreakable, and, and that he was going to get that guy right. Like I I wish that had been where M Night felt comfortable stopping. It wasn't, and that's okay. Um, but it makes me sad. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me real sad because his next film, the follow-up of course was glass, which was by far his longest break in between films since 2000. Um, it was four years in between split and glass, mostly apparently because of scheduling with the various actors. Um, but, uh, glass is the split is a sort of like unbreakable 1.5, Whereas Glass is like a full sequel to Unbreakable, or it was intended to be. And uh, it did it did very well. It was still very low budgeted, $20 million. It made 250. Everybody was still pleased, but it was critically not great. Um, yeah. Because it's not a good movie. And it's really sad at the end uh, how things go down. And obviously now we know that Bruce Willis, as he was making this film, was in the beginning stages of the disorder that has now caused him to retire from acting completely. And that is, is pretty evident in this. Yeah. Um, although I, I feel like this may go down as the, the last movie where Bruce Willis gave even a little bit of a shit. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I think this this is what that will be. And uh, it's not really his movie. It's really more Samuel L. Jackson's film in a lot of ways. Um, which I think is intentional and that's fine. But it, as a sequel to Unbreakable, it was, it was very unsatisfying. Um, and, and that's okay. I, I, again, I don't want to harp on it, but uh, Glass is another one that we've considered talking about for this, but that could easily fill its whole episode. So I don't want to spend too much time. Um, but so really from 2016 up until like really 2019, 2020, 
Shyamalan was wrapping up stuff from the Unbreakable universe, right? He was like four years of trying to figure out how he was going to tell that story. Well, really from 2015, I guess. So old is his first sort of original script. Not totally original, but his first sort of like back to here are the kinds of like weird one-off projects that M. Night Shyamalan, you know, was kind of known for throughout the early 2000s. And um, to mixed results, to say the least, right? Mixed, maybe putting it mildly. Um, but this is not an original idea. This is based apparently on a uh, graphic novel, uh, a French graphic novel. I'm, I'm not sure how he came across it, but I'm, I'm sure he sees lots and lots of things uh, that come across his desk. He did do an original screenplay uh, that's based on Sandcastle by Pierre Oscar Levy and Frederick Peters. Um, but it, it's, you know, it is his original screenplay based upon that. And I think he makes some sort of key changes to it. Really, I think it's just the core concept of what the beach is and, and how the beach works that he sort of pulled from this other story. Um, but so I guess let's do just sort of overall impressions, and then we'll get into a, a bit of spoilers. There's really not much to talk about here. This is a swift film. Uh, it's a hundred minutes, uh, maybe a little over a hundred minutes sans credits, but, um, which I'm totally okay with. Again, we're, <laughs> we've talked at length about the fact that movies are too long. So hundred minute movies, a okay. But uh, with this one, we've, we've got some interesting things going on uh, to say the least. So, so first impressions from you um, on, on this project, this was one that I suggested. They just got added to HBO max. So fairly easy accessibility, but what do you think of old? I did not like this movie. <laughs> All right. <laughs> This this movie was weird. Um, it's not the premise. Exceedingly, yeah. No. But just the way that it was made and the way that it was shot, I don't understand any of the decisions that were made. I don't know why the movie looks the way that it does. I just, <laughs> it was just deeply upsetting. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is... It, I, I too remember thinking, I actually saw this in the theater. This was kind of a, a date night. Uh, we didn't know what movie we were going to see. It was one of the rare occasions where we just showed up at the theater and like, what's playing, you know? And so this was there and I was like, eh, you know, can't be that bad. Oh, it can. And, <laughs> and I remember thinking a lot about the filmmaking at the time, like filming on a beach in this sort of enclosed space, you, you immediately start layering in restriction, Right. Um, you know, you don't have the, the sort of full canvas with which to paint. You have to sort of limit your, your brushes down. So this entire film, as we mentioned, or for most of it, I mean, there are other parts of the film that the resort and things like that, but the, the vast majority of the film takes place on the beach. Um, so you have that visual landscape, beach, ocean, there's like a reef out to the side that we can see a little bit of, there's a cave. And then there's like a passageway from the beach to, you know, the, the mainland area, if you want to call it that. And that's it in terms of geography. There's really nothing else. So this is a very sort of visually uninteresting film. Um, it, just by the nature of where it is, right? There's sand, there's water. That's it. There's some tents, I guess. Um, now, I won't say that it's, it's ugly, ugly. I really don't. I, I think it's more just flat right? There's just not a ton going on visually with this film. 
And, you know, Shyamalan, as we've mentioned before, he loves to move his camera. So the camera's kind of constantly swinging and sort of, there's a lot of dollying as characters are moving up and down the beach. You know, there's a lot of repetition in the camera moves in this film as well, um, which I, I, I don't think help it from a technical standpoint. Um, I don't think it's egregious. I don't know if another director would have been capable of doing much more with it, if I can say that. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's pretty dull. Um, Everyone so, says their lines like they're being fed them through earpieces. <laughs> well, maybe it was his experience with Bruce Willis that told him how efficient I, that could be. Oh, maybe, but that's it. what I thought of. I said of. it. I'm sorry. That's yeah. what I thought of. With because why does everyone? I just kept saying, why does everyone talk this way? Why can't they just be natural human beings reading lines of dialogues like professional actors? Because like Gail. Garcia Bernal is a great actor. I know that because I've seen the other the movies. Finest. Yeah, I, I've seen other movies that he's been in, and he's great. But what's wrong with him in this movie? <laughs> Rufus I, Sewell is amazing. He's uh, I adore yeah. him. He was the one I was going to mention because for me, watching it, Sewell's performance is is the worst performance in this, and and it makes no sense to me why. Um, because Sewell is, is an incredibly capable actor. Um, he's making me enjoy the man in the high castle. Like he's yeah. like, I'm, sure. I'm currently watching that show and like, he's the reason to watch it because he's great. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. but in this, no, no, this is not good. This um, is definitely not good. Right. So, um, my initial impressions, I'm, I'm a little bit more mid-tier on this. I, I think it's, if you approach it as sort of like a weird Twilight Zone episode, um, I, I think I think it'd be okay. And, and keeping in mind that Twilight Zone episodes, you know, they're not as interesting in developing character. Like, you know, the, the best ones do at the same time. The best Twilight Zone episodes have a great character. They have a really interesting sort of premise that they can run out for the exact runtime and not a minute longer. Like that's the thing is like most twilight episodes work because of the format. If you tried to run that out to a 90 minute or a two hour movie, it's not going to work. It'll fall apart. And, and this feels like a movie like that. Like this would have probably been fine as like a 25 minute or like, you know, it, something but. Or like 40 minutes and Mulder and Scully show up at some point. That would have been oh, sure. Yeah. A good X-Files episode. Yeah. Right? Something along those lines. Um, but I mean, I knew I was in for trouble when uh, one of the kids from the, the main couple, right. Where there's several sort of groups of people that all get thrown onto this beach together. But the main couple that we sort of follow from the beginning, they've got two kids. The youngest son is named Trent. Um, he's played at several different stages throughout the film by different actors. But as his youngest self is like five or six year old self, he runs around and he asks, who are you? What's your name? And what do you do? Right. And then that prompts characters to say, Oh, I'm so-and-so and I'm a police officer or I'm a, you know, this movie had a massive show. Don't tell problem. Yes. Like you could see that Shyamalan was struggling to figure out, well, how would you get these unrelated individuals on a beach at a resort who don't know each other and don't need to know each other? How would you get them to exchange vital biographical information necessary for the rest of the story? 
And this, that's what he came up with was to just create a young, stupid kid character that would run around and ask people directly so that we would know because the guy that he asks shows up later in the film and what he does for a living is very important. Yeah. Right. And it's just that kind of, again, it's like, it's sort of signs ish in that the setup and the payoff are there, but the construction the of how the setup and is payoff, just, it's terrible. It's inorganic, right? It is obvious setup and payoff, right? It is, it is like, Oh, I see what you're doing. Right. And not in like a subtle, I mean, not that Chekhov's gun is subtle, but like, the whole point, the understanding of Chekhov's gun as a screenwriting technique or as a, as a entertainment technique in general is that you want to make sure that it's there. You see it, but it's backgrounded, right? You don't want to make it. You don't want to like put Chekhov's gun on the mantelpiece with a spotlight shining on it and then big arrows pointing to it being like, look, it's a gun. Right? Yeah. You just you have it there. But Shyamalan seems to really struggle with that like he wants to make sure hey did you guys see that gun did do you, do you wink do you get it it's yeah. it's right there guys and and that i think is just 40 years ago 30 years ago now at this point maybe you could get away with that shit but honestly i just think film goers are too smart now or at least they're, a good chunk of them are and they go like oh man Pull it back a little, dude. Like, the, you don't have to be so specific. For the people who miss those details, they're the ones who are going to be surprised by those twist endings. For the audience right. members who are smart enough to see those details, it's insulting to have them pointed it's, out constantly. It is insufferable. Yeah. Like, it is just insufferable to have it that obvious. Um, And, it, it, and to, a, to a certain extent, it ruins the experience. You know, it's that episode of the IT crowd where Roy uh, is trying to watch the new Tarantino film and he doesn't want to be spoiled on whether or not there's a twist. And then like his friend calls and he's like, oh, man, that twist was amazing. And he's like, oh, damn it. <laughs> now I know there's a twist and I'm going to spend the rest of this movie trying to figure out what it is instead yeah. of watching the movie. And and unfortunately, instead of. Shyamalan learning that lesson and trying to further either just remove that as a thing from his films or try and background it so that it does become harder for that twist minded audience to realize what's happening. He seems to be pointing even bigger arrows to it so that they'll get it when it happens. And that's a bad way to do twists in my opinion, right? It's just not a good way to do it because you just frustrate people, right? There's a reason why six cents twist works so well. It's because you, you had all the evidence, but you hadn't put it together. Same yeah, thing with usual suspects, it. you know, this one, you've got all the evidence. And if you don't put it together, it's because you're, you're a dumb, dumb, right? Like, <laughs> like you just weren't paying close attention at all. Your phone was very active. You got several important notifications during the film. And now you are surprised at the outcome. Um, so again, they, uh, I guess we'll, we'll get into spoilers now. I, I, again, I don't think we need to say anything else. This is a very mild recommend. Uh, if this is already on a streaming service that you, uh, subscribe to, sure. Like I said, it's a hundred minutes. It's not terrible. Um, but this is, is not a good film. No. Um, the premise is interesting. 
So if the premise sort of grabs you, the idea of them being trapped on this beach, and then obviously there's something going on with time and age. Yep, go ahead. Give it a shot. But I, beyond that, I don't think anybody just sort of walking into this film is going to be exceedingly pleased with what it, where it goes or what it does. Um, all right, so spoiler talk. This family... Uh, uh, I don't like them. No. Um, and, and I feel like at the very least you should really like your main characters. Uh, you don't have to, I mean, I've read enough literary fiction to know that you can have unlikable main characters that still propel the plot and keep the reader engaged. But in a film like this, I think you should like the people you're hanging out with. And I don't like any of them. Um, so our, our main family, again, as we already mentioned, they're sort of in the midst of many problems. I, I think the wife cheated on the husband and he found out and, and, but he's not like, he's not like that mad about it. He's just like, yeah, I get it. But you know, we probably shouldn't be together anymore. I, I, I'm still down to be together, but I get it. If you don't want to be, it's this real like super passive approach to, to a, a relationship breaking up, which maybe that's intentional. Maybe that's like Shyamalan trying to, to seed this idea that neither of these people are especially committed to each other, which is why at the end of the film, when they kind of recommit to each other, it's like meaningful, I guess. But it's this super just like it's weird shoulder shruggy. Yeah, I guess if you it's want to like get a people divorce, who have I never met before pretending to be spouses. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, there's there's history and background that's been composed, but it doesn't seem to actually inform the performances of the characters. Um, and given that these are two very accomplished actors, it seems surprising to me that that would be the case because the the main couple is played by Gail Garcia Bernal, as you already mentioned, and, and Vicky Creeps uh, or Creps. I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but. Um, uh, you know, she's had a, a pretty long and illustrious, mostly European film career, but, you know, she's very good. She was in Hannah, you know, like she's she's been around a long time, but they they don't feel like a couple that's actually been married for any length of time. Their kids are typical M. Night Shyamalan kids. They've all each of them just has a thing like it's it's character creation through having a thing. So Trent is super smart, but he's also hyper annoying. And then the daughter sings. That's it. That's, um, that's and all. the kids act weird. They're weird. They, they don't they act, act like kids. They act in the way the plot demands them to act. Yeah. They do all of the things the plot demands that they do and nothing else. Um, which is weird. It just, it, nothing feels natural. Everything about this film feels stiff and artificial and constructed. Yeah. And so, and here's the thing, all films are stiff and artificial and constructed, right? Like they're absolutely that way because they're, they're manufactured. It is a product, but, but they work toward not being that way. Exactly. Like a good director is capable of masking that fact by using their actors effectively, by crafting a screenplay that feels real. You know, you've got people like, you know, Kevin Smith who butt up against that, you know, cause their characters are constantly delivering these eloquent speeches and things that no one would ever actually be able to say in real life. But he sort of grounds everything else so that you kind of buy that that could still happen. But when all of the pieces, the performances, the screenplay, the directing style, like all of that stuff just doesn't come together 
to gel a world that feels somewhat real. And for the third fucking time, I'm going to use the word verisimilitude in a, in a, in an M night Shyamalan podcast, but it feels necessary. He doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like M night Shyamalan knows what the world feels like anymore. Mm. Like, I think he's forgotten what it means to be alive. (laughs) Just like a normal person. And I think it's because I think it's because he grew up in Hollywood and for all intents and purposes, like he's been involved in, in Hollywood since his twenties. And I think he has been in such total and full control of his universe, like the Shyamalan universe that is his life for that amount of time that I don't think he remembers that life itself is this uncontrolled mess and that most people are messes. And so everything is just too pristine. It's just too perfect. And that too perfectness makes the entire world feel wrong. Now, in this one, you would think that it might kind of help because this is meant to be a resort that is constructing a reality for people to engage in as part of a vacation. But nothing about the resort feels wrong or off or unnatural necessarily. It's the people in it, which is just Mm -hmm. the opposite of what we what we need. (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 truly just bewildering. And I don't I can't point to a single choice that is creating this feeling inside the film. It's, it's a collection of choices. Now, there were um, problems with this film's production because of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? So that does change things, right? Shyamalan, by all accounts, is a very actor-centric director most of the time. Like, he works very closely with the actors. Um, doesn't mean that he always gets good results, but he at least attempts to. But it sounds like this was an extremely small production, right? Everybody's masked up. Everybody, you know, there's minimal people around while stuff is going on. I, I think in some ways, maybe some of those things contributed at least a little bit, but it, at the end of the day, it's, there's something wrong about the feeling and tone that this film is creating. And it's, and when it pushes in one direction, it really should have been pushing in the other in almost every circumstance. So this family feels off. Their, their plot family, you know, I, it doesn't matter who they are or what their names are. They're just there to serve the plot. And so they, the, they show up at the resort. There's an initial fight. The kids hear the fight because, of course, they do. And then they, they, you know, it's one of those things. The kids know exactly what's going on, but the parents won't tell them anything, whatever. So they get down to the beach, and there's a little bit of a scene. There's like a little resort kid, like his uncle runs the place or something. And so he, when he finds out they're going to the beach, he like hands a note to the kid and it's like, Hey, you know, something's wrong, blah, blah, blah. Again, set up and pay off, but like super obvious, super weird setup for an eventual payoff that doesn't feel earned, but they get to the beach and that's where we get introduced to the rest of the cast of characters. Um, so we have Rufus Sewell and his trophy wife. Um, he's supposed to be like a surgeon or something, right? Mm-hmm. A chief of complicated wife, surgery. Chief of complicated surgery, uh, highly complicated, highly chief. And um, we are also told that she has a calcium deficiency. So she always needs extra calcium. So again, very hackneyed, very much a thing that no one would ever say in the context in which that line is delivered. Also, I just, I got to give a shout out to Abby Lee, who always has to play these vapid 
vain, terrible people, <laughs> even though she's actually quite sweet. And and I just I hope that someday she gets roles where she doesn't have to play this person. Can she um, ever be not that person? Yeah, like, yeah. can she just be like a nice, beautiful lady <laughs> instead of a, a horrible, beautiful lady? Nope. Nothing but horrible, beautiful ladies. She's too pretty to be nice. She's just going to have to deal with it. In M. Night Shyamalan's world, if you're super pretty, that means you're a bitch. Um, and she's like way over the top. I mean, they have her spray tanned oh, to into the next goodness. century. She's yeah. wearing so much eye makeup that it, it just looks uncomfortable. Like the weight of those eyelashes looks uncomfortable. Again, it's it's laughable. I mean, yeah. It's I understand it's archetypal and you're you're playing upon audience expectations, but it's it's to the point of ridiculousness. Yeah. So the point that you don't feel like this is a real person anymore. And if it's not a real person, then guess what, M. Night Shyamalan? I'm not gonna give a shit when they die. Yeah. Right? Like I don't care because it's just you're you're literally just murdering black text on a white page. That's all you're doing. Right. It's not a it's not a fully formed person. It's not an individual that I feel strongly about. It's just, oh, well, of course that character died. And if this was just a slasher movie. OK, sure. Fine. Oh, did Billy die? Oh, I Billy had nice jeans. Right. Like that's fine <laughs> for that kind of movie. But in this kind of movie where you are trying to have some kind of like emotional core, because I really do feel like this movie's trying to do that. It, it just doesn't work. Um, so we've got them. Uh, oh, and his his aging mother who is with them. She is, is has Alzheimer's or something. She has like um, one line. Yeah, she has one line and then immediately dies. Probably because it's very hot on that beach. Older actress, very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, uh, Shyamalan is nothing if not pragmatic. <laughs> um, so then we've got... Uh, the uh, guy from Lost, the the tail section guy from Lost. That's bad. Uh, it's Kin Lung. Uh, or yeah, Leung. Uh, Who's, he's he's great. He's a great he's actor, good. but not in this. He, he has nothing he has, to do. He very he at the very least has a couple of scenes where he expresses tonally adequate emotions. Mm -hmm. Like he seems upset by the events that he is facing. <laughs> Whereas everyone which, else is just nonplussed. Like Meh. yeah, like. <laughs> Oh, I can't get off. This the sure beach is the weird. Is, <laughs> and the beach is killing us. Man, that weird. sucks. So strange. Yeah, it's it's just very, very odd. But um, there is also uh, a little, oh, the little girl, right? Uh, Eliza, uh, gosh, whatever. But the, like the Rufus Sewell character and, and the, the trophy wife have a, a young daughter together. Uh, and then, oh man, probably one of the things that's been maligned the most about that film is there is a rapper who is already on the beach when they get there. Uh, and this rapper's name, and I don't know if this is a joke or if this is, again, in the little microcosm universe that M. Night Shyamalan inhabits, you know, whatever palatial estate in outside of Pittsburgh that he lives in and apparently never leaves if he really thinks this is what rappers are called <laughs> or if he's trying to make some sort of side-eyed glance towards that. I don't know, but this guy's name is mid-size sedan. I love it. Um, I and, and this has nothing to, to do with the, sedan. 
this has nothing to do with the actor. Aaron Pierre is, is he's been on the BBC. He's been on like Krypton and stuff like he's sort of a, a you know, a lower tier TV actor and he does fine, right? Like he's fine in this character. If anything, again, he has some adequately expressed emotional beats that work. But the entire premise of his character and how it's handled in the film is so wrongheaded that I, I really can't, I, I really don't even understand why this character is in the movie. I don't understand it. Um, and if anything, it just, it just makes me feel sad and angry <laughs> that it was included uh, in the film. Um, and it gives us a scene where the teenaged daughter of the family, Picking, she's like freaking screeching. out. She's like, 11. Yeah, she's like, it's mid-sized sedan. I don't know if, if your success as a rapper it is affected by this sort of thing, but I assume that like having 11-year-old girls as fans is not really what you want. That's mm -mm. not really... Mm -mm. That's not really like, I've made it. An 11-year-old recognizes me. And, yeah, you know, she there was starts a, screeching, mid-sized sedan. And there was a piece of me that, as this all played out, what I thought was going to happen, because like it's set up very quickly that he's a stranger, right? Even though they're all strangers, none of them know each other. But he's like outside of their group, and they don't know who he is. He didn't what come he's on doing. the shuttle with us. And, and he's a black man, and so there's all of this like weird racism stuff that gets thrown in there from the Rufus Sewell character. Even though Ken Long's wife is also black. Also, also black. Um, I, I, again, but She's not I, mysterious she, like he is. She's not mysterious. She's not a mysterious rapper named Midsize Sedan, <laughs> right? Who conjures <laughs> images of, I don't know, a 2006 Honda Accord, <sighs> right? Oh, the intimidation factor. Um that he's a Chevy Malibu. No. <laughs> um, it's, it's just a very, it's a very strange inclusion and, and I was not against it, right? Like I, I'm certainly down for seeing, you know, a racist moron get punched in the gut, like go for it. But it's, it's so hackneyed and out of place in this film. And again, inorganic and unnatural that people in this circumstance would be worried about that. Yeah. Right. Like that would, that would be their primary concern. And I know it plays in later. Cause okay. Like let's, let's go ahead and lay out the, the twist because we can't really talk about it without it. The beach makes you get old. That's it. That's pure. It's in the title. It makes you get old. It's, it's a special beach. It's a, it's a, an, it's an old beach beach. It's old beach. Even though if everything on the beach is aging at that scale, there would be a lot more things wrong with the beach. Yep. <laughs> because hey, guess guess what? Rocks get old. Mm. I don't know if you guys knew that. They do age and they break and they fall apart and things happen, but whatever. Um, so the beach makes you old. When they arrive, everything's fine. They're playing and dancing, doing whatever, obsessing over mid-sized sedan, and then they start realizing, you know, things are happening, right? So um the the doctor and his family, they have a dog. The dog dies because dogs age much faster. And the mom dies. Then the mom dies pretty much at the same time because she and, was already old. And they find a dead body floating in the water. Like a lot of really fucked up stuff happens <laughs> as soon yes, as they get to like, the beach and they're all just fine. Yeah. One of the things that may sustain you watching this is that 
in terms of recent Shyamalan output, this has some of the most sort of like messed up horror style imagery that he's done in a while. Um, you know, Split had its moments, but Split was all that stuff was kind of like just in the background and sort of building to that point. The, the worst thing in Split is, is like the images of self-harm that are revealed on Anya Taylor-Joy at the end, right? Um, and But in this, like, there there is some scary and very frightening brief moments. But yeah, like, all this They're stuff happens. They're just not acknowledged. Like, nothing is, it, it happens yeah. and everyone's, like, briefly upset and then they just move on. Yeah, and then it's like, oh, well, that was weird. My mom died. Strange. I guess we'll just, you know, eat some pasta. And it's, it's it's just a very strange way to sort of handle this. Now, I mean, once that happens, they do try to leave the beach, right? And they find out that when they try to leave the beach, they, like, pass out. And they, they wind up back on the beach. And, and, like, a certain amount of time has passed. So there's some kind of thing preventing them from leaving. It's never explained. Magnetic fields, whatever. You know, it's, again, Twilight Zone premise. Best not to think about it. But... But even when they realize they can't get off the beach, they, they all kind of just settle in. Yeah, like, well, I guess like, we live on the beach now. Yep, it's beach time. And, and, and like, nobody's really, like, trying to figure out what's going on necessarily. There are little spatters of conversation, but I, I guess one of the things that this movie actually suffers from is that it's so obsessed with time, but yet... I really feel like the film progresses without a strong ticking clock element. Yeah. Which it needed, right? I mean, you know, I think about a movie like Dunkirk, which, you know, is, is espousing a specific series of hours and it will days, I guess, if you want to look at it, but days, hours and minutes in a, at a specific time in human history that is very well recorded. Right. So Christopher Nolan being a guy who's constantly obsessed with that kind of stuff He's got it all figured out where like I can show this part over this amount of time and this part over this amount of time and this part over this amount of time. Then I'll structure it all together. And we're in this part. We're going to hear it to remind us that time is progressing. Time is progressing. And it's like we needed something like that. Like we needed them to find a busted old watch on the beach. Right. That's, you know, for some reason was still keeping accurate time. Right. I don't care why. I don't care how. It doesn't really matter. But we need somebody to be able to calculate because like human beings bad at time right like yeah. we don't think about that we don't look at it and be like oh it's been one hour and 17 minutes nobody does that and so like when you have a bunch of characters on a beach with no references for what time of day it is when you're trying to tell me oh we've got three hours till every person on this beach is dead because we're all going to age 40 years or whatever i need to be reminded of how much time has passed and this movie doesn't do that. It's just very nebulous about how much time has passed, what's happening, you know, how old the kids are. And I imagine that's because basically once it's revealed that everybody's aging, we really fall into three phases of the characters, right? And this is three phases in terms of their old age makeup for the older characters, the switchover of actors from the young kids to the middle-aged kids to the teenaged kids you know, and so on and so forth. Like we really only see like three variations of them. And I'm sure that's budgetary and it's just a realistic, like we have this much to do with, we can't, you know, we can't have 12 different kid actors playing these characters as they grow up because that would be obviously weird. But because they have to be more nebulous to accommodate that stuff, I really don't know how long it's been since they hit that beach and how, and when is the danger time, right? Yeah. 
he tries to make it seem like sunset. Like when the sun goes down, they're basically, you know, fucked. But then the sun does go down and they're not. So I don't, I don't get it. You know, It's just, it's, I'm sure if I watched it again, there might be some subtle clues as to that. But again, this is a movie that feels like it should have constant pressure, right? Once the, once the problem is revealed, then it's just a constant like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What's our next plan? What's our next plan? What's our next plan? And, and it just kind of doesn't, it just has these lulls of inaction where characters just sitting around doing nothing. Um, and it seems like, and I don't know if this is part of the adaptation, but it seems like Shyamalan had in his mind that he wanted several big beats, right? We find the dead body of mid-sized sedan's girlfriend or paramour or whatever break right now, 15 minutes of characters talking and, and just terrible racism. <laughs> Then grandma dies, dog dies. Okay. Next big moment, big reveal, you know, dog bones, whatever. Then, you know, Kin Lung makes his swim to try and escape. He dies. And it's just like, there are these beats. And then of course, like the big beat, and I will say arguably the thing that may make or break you on this film regardless is kid sex. Um, because our kids grow up really fast. Right. They go from being like six to being like 13 real fast, a couple of hours without any sort of. And we aren't really given much like it doesn't. How to explain this? It doesn't feel like a, the big enough moment when the kids are revealed to have aged up the first time. No, as as a parent. I would lose my fucking mind. I would lose my goddamn if a kid. I mean, because that's the thing, like the guy approaches, right? So it's, you know, we transition from like little five and six year old kid. He gets a little bit older and then he's like teenager. And so like this teenager approaches and he's like, hey, mom, what's going on? And she's and, and he does this thing where she's like sitting and the kid comes up behind her and stuff. And but like, it's obviously not the same guy. And she sees him and she's like, who are you? Who could you be? And he's like, you know, you're alone on this beach. You know, there's something weird going on and you're going to have like a, a, a scene where you like question who this is. Like, of course, you know who this is. And, and but then after that, she both of the parents, they just kind of deal with it super fast. Like, oh, well, this I is loved, my kid now. I loved after the big like age up reveal, they both just dumbly stare at them. And then the next thing is the mom's like, well, I've got an extra swimsuit, honey, so you just go change. Because they're, like, <laughs> their clothes don't fit anymore. Right. The big but, like, concern is that our boobies going to hang out. I, I, I would be in tears. I would be, uh, I would be wailing. I would be like, what the fuck is going on? What hap- was happening to my children? But they're just But she had kinda... that line. But she had that line where she said, I can't wait to hear your voice when you're all grown up. Uh, and now she can. It's... It's set up and payoff. It's meaningful. Oh my god! <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. It was just so bad. I, I, and I mean, I guess they're. I, I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to feel because I don't really understand what these parents feel. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of wandering around, going, "Huh, the kids seem to be getting older. That's weird. Man, this beach <laughs> right. is weird." What a so crazy weird. day. <laughs> and and so like um 
Trent and the daughter of the doctor, they have sex as teenagers because. And like, I guess, I guess the movie wants us to feel something about that, but I don't know what that is. Cause she has a baby in like 15 minutes and which I mean, come on, I guess whatever, but like nobody's, nobody's disturbed enough by anything that's happening. (laughs) No, like there would be enough psychic trauma inflicted on a human being through any one of these events that the culmination of all of them happening in a seemingly short time span would just leave you dazed and bewildered. Like, like, there would be no no functioning. The after. thing about pregnancy, like I've never been pregnant. I hope to never be pregnant because I've actually read what happens to the human body over the course of pregnancy. Um, and I'm sure your wife can fill in a lot of the gory details for you later. Mm-hmm. But and And like you were there for a lot of it. Do you think... That she would have just like looked down and been like, huh, my belly's getting bigger. Like that is not how it works. Like your pelvis expands, your bones hurt, like everything hurts about what's happening to your body. And this kid is just like, oh, I'm going to give birth to a baby. Like what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm usually so down with suspending my disbelief in a lot of movies. I'm okay with it. But this mm-hmm. was just like not even trying. Yeah, it's that, that little girl would have been in so much pain, oh, agony, just, agony, just like, from the growth of a fetus over the course of like ten minutes. And it didn't even feel like it was ten minutes. No, it's yeah, it's it's just it's again, it's too much, right? It's a premise that's fine, but he's packing in too many things about the premise to get big trailer moments. Like he's building trailer moments is what's happening here. Like Shyamalan understands now that if he's going to get people into the theater to see his movies, he needs to hook them and he needs to show them something they haven't seen before. So babies having babies. We, we talk about it on the news all the time. Let's, let's do it. Right. And in some cases it's fine. Again, if you want to be sort of mildly disturbed by something like that, it's here for you. Come get it. Um, but it's again, I, the acting and performances in this don't support the experiences that these characters are having. Um, you know, and the payoffs that these characters provide don't really earn the kind of trauma that they go through either. Um, so the, the parents, I mean, we can break down the groups very simply. Um, Dr. Guy, Rufus Sewell, you know, chief medical officer of highly complicated surgery. He, um, it basically has like, Early onset schizophrenia. Um, what is it again? It's schizophrenia. schizophrenia. Yeah. So and, and so his his disorder gets better, and and that's kind of what slowly gets revealed is that everybody on this beach, because the there is a pretty good surgery scene. Like I'm I'm always down for these kinds of scenes, but the mom, she gets basically a cancerous tumor in her stomach, and like chief medical officer of complicated surgery is able to excise that tumor, but it grows just fantastically fast and she's in just tremendous pain like a softball sized tumor which makes the pregnancy thing even worse (laughs) yes so much worse and so like because i'm like that's enough right like that's that's enough we don't need the other part i understand if you want to do it but like you wouldn't have had to but so like they there's enough pieces in place you know these characters have these things one of them's a nurse you know blah 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 
but what it's what's ultimately the the common thread that you should be picking up on is that all of these people have either diagnosed or undiagnosed serious medical conditions, right? Mid-sized sedan, he's a hemophiliac, he bleeds too easy. Um, the mom, she has stomach cancer, and that's her her panic over having stomach cancer is one of the reasons why she wants to divorce because she's just not sure about her future. Um, schizophrenia for doctor guy, calcium deficiency for the lady lady. Um, um, the, you know, the other woman has uh, epilepsy. Uh, well, well, she had epilepsy, exactly. So like all of these these things, these conditions that they have that are being accelerated by being on the beach. And, you know, there's a couple of scenes where characters see like people, you know, lenses, lens flare and stuff from the distance. And so the idea is that somebody's watching them on the beach, observing these things as they happen. And, and that leads us inevitably to our, our twist, right? Because all of the characters, save for the two kids, die. Um, the two kids from the main family, the, the one girl, she tries to what, climb? She tries to climb out of the beach and then she yeah. falls and dies. Um, which, you know, again, totally fine. Like, whatever. Adequately I didn't like her anyway. Kill her. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I don't know her, right? Like, I knew her I when... I feel you, nothing. <laughs> you, you spent a bunch of time with her when she was six. I didn't get to know her when she was, like, a teen. So, sure, kill her. I don't care. And I guess, um, like, maybe the movie's trying to say something about that. Like, ah, imagine it. <laughs> and, like, right. I can, but yeah. it sucks. I, this sucks. It sucks. Yeah, and... So like the, the two kids of the main family, they're aging rapidly. So everything, you know, again, we're kind of told that when it gets dark, everybody's, everybody's dead, right? Especially the older family. Cause they're, I think they even work it out to where they're aging like seven years every hour or something like that. And the only people left on the following morning are the two kids who are now in their like forties, right? Um, which is just weird. And they still, they're like still super close and kind of grabby with it's, it's weird. Right. And I understand like you're trying to make, you've got 35 year olds and 40 year olds who are trying to play kids who have like the mental age of 12. So yeah. I get that. That's, that's hard. It's, that's not easy. Right. How but do you they, do that? But the result is that they sound like idiots. <laughs> yeah. And so like, then he again, set up and pay off. He finds the note from the friend that he met the day before who says they don't like the reef or something. The coral. Dad doesn't like the coral. Daddy doesn't like the coral. And so they decide that they're going to, they have to swim through the coral, that the coral somehow is like a defensive barrier to what's going on on the beach. If they can make it through that, they'll be fine. And, and that's exactly what happens. And they do that. And then we flash out of that to M night Shyamalan because he's also in this and he is like the guy who takes the people to the beach and then monitors them. And so he goes back to the resort and we find out this resort because there was a line at the beginning where the mom said, Oh, we just got the best deal. Like it was crazy. This place shouldn't have been this cheap. And she tries to pass off like it was a Groupon deal or something, but it was just exceedingly good. We find out that this resort is not a resort. It's actually a pharmaceutical company. And they use the beach to do long-term drug testing on these diseases. Because what you can't do under normal circumstances is see the long-term effects of a new drug, right? It takes years. Yeah, it speeds up the clinical trials. 
Exactly. So when they get there, they made a big deal of everybody taking these uh, special drinks that had been prepared for them based on their taste profiles or some other bullshit. But all of these drinks were actually laced with experimental drugs meant to either hinder or help their conditions. Uh, mostly help, I guess. And so they used the beach to run the trials and then see how what kind of effects they would have. Because I guess even though the body's aging very quickly, it's still processing the drug at a normal rate. So even though they're going from being like 30 to 70, the drug is still in their system working. Mm-hmm. Again, best not to think about it. Yeah. But so with this, there's like this long speech at the end where the guy's like, we're going to help millions of people with our research we've done here. And these deaths, these sacrifices, they will do so much for the world. Like, and I'm like, okay, that's, hmm. well, A, complication number one, that means that there are teams, like literally hundreds of people who are involved in this process of murdering these families. Yeah. And they're like just whole, okay with it. This is just, this premise because you took the time to explain it is falling apart even more. It's worse, <laughs> right? It would have been better for them to get off the beach, get back to the resort. The two kids show up wrapped in a towel, go to the policeman. Cause that's who he found. Trent found out that there was a policeman there. Go to the policeman and say, we have something to tell you. End. Yeah. Done. Right. Maybe some people from the resort run up behind them and they're like, Oh no! Well, like you can right, show whatever, some signs but... or something that that indicate that it's pharmaceutical research, and then let people draw their own conclusions if they want to. Likely, they will just right. want to forget about this movie, forget that they ever saw it. But it's it's that Shyamalan knows that. I mean, it's like he's playing with the audience now. He knows that they expect a twist, so he's going to deliver one. And just in case you weren't smart enough to get it. He's going to fully explain it to you. Yeah. Right. Cause that's, that's the other thing about the sixth sense that I guess people kind of forget is that the twist is revealed, but it's never explained. Yeah. Right. Like nobody stands up and says, you know, like there isn't a doctor at the end that comes out and he's like, well, you realize, but you know, the whole time. but you know, a movie that I, I think, I think does is uh psycho. And maybe those Hitchcock comparisons just went to his head too much. And he's like, well, we've got to have the, the police officer the scene at, at the end of Psycho. Scene, yeah. yeah, we have to have the skull showing into the, the face to know. You see, when the killer. mother side took over, like, it's just, yeah, it's mean, too much. It's too much. It's, it's just, it, it does damage to the film. The twist does active damage to the film in this particular case. I think it's better as a creepy sort of partially explained because I mean, they seeded the idea that already somebody was watching. Right. So maybe even you just have a scene of M night Shyamalan's character packing up his gear after having observed, maybe like you said, there's a sign on the back of the van that says like PharmaCorp or something stupid like that. BioCore, whatever you want to call it. And we know now that, you know, Oh, there was some kind of experiment, you know, or whatever. And then we see like the next group coming in and we see the same repeated process and it's the exact same repeated process with the same people in the same glasses. Cause when you're running clinical trials, all that shit has to match. And it's like, you know, and the, and you let that speak for itself. I, I don't know, but the ending of this movie just is inherently unsatisfying because the twist does active damage to everything we've watched before. It just trivializes everything. 
and then the unraveling of the the twist, right? As the kids come back in and tell the cops, Hey, and then we get even another scene on top of that where it's like, well, I guess we're going to go live with our aunt now. Like, why did we <laughs> Last need time to know she saw me? Going. I was six. Yeah. It's like, is there going to be old too? Is that what it is? We're gonna... <laughs> old <laughs> we're gonna come two, back with these even older, again. even older. Oh, I, <laughs> okay. This is side note, but I'll say it just cause it's funny. Um, we watched, there's a new Chippendale rescues, rescue Rangers movie on Disney plus. And it is, um, by the lonely Island guys. Like it's a Kaiva Schaefer and Andy Samberg and, and some other people. Mm. And it's just, it's rife with like Saturday morning references. Right. Cause it's, you know, Chippendale and even afternoon, like TV block stuff. But one of the funniest moments they're going through Hollywood and they're just talking about like the dearth of original ideas because that's what all these movies do in order to be meta commentary instead of pointing out that that's what they're doing. And they turn around and there's a poster on like a bus stop and it's just fast and furious babies. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like all of these babies dressed as the characters from fast and furious. So like ones in like the black sleeveless tee with the gold shade and they're sitting on top of like a Mustang or something. It's just fast and furious babies. And uh, it was just a glorious moment in in film history. I loved it. But anyway, uh, old is like fast and furious baby. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I um, see that. It's, it's devoid of original ideas, even though it espouses to have totally original ideas. And I won't say that the premise is not unique. It's, it's, inc- it's intriguing, but the execution of that premise is so hackneyed and tropey that it's, it sort of runs over itself. Right. It doesn't let the premise breathe. Um, You know, it almost would have been better to be the single family. On the beach alone. You know, having been led there, discovered it, who who knows, like it doesn't really matter. Um, But it just. It's a it's an interesting idea that gets absolutely smothered by a bunch of concerns that it doesn't really need to have. And it's. And if anything, that makes it more frustrating because it's one where you can see that glimmer of like, oh, this really could have been something. Um, But it just, it it never gets there. And, you know, whether that's, I mean, it's hard to not attribute it all to Shyamalan since he's pretty much in control of every phase of his films at this point. I mean, he directs, he writes, he produces, um, he probably does the catering. I mean, I assume he's involved in all of those choices, but it's... uh, it it didn't make me mad to watch it, but it did make me sad. And and maybe I was that's a little bit mad. <laughs> Where you sound a little bit mad. Was, we got I started. Just, I was a little bit mad. Yeah. I mean, little things kind of bothered me. Like the old age makeup was even kind of inconsistent. I don't know if that bothered you. Uh, yeah. No, it was like, pretty bad. The way that they aged uh supermodel wife was horrible. Like they made her look so incredibly old. But then the parents hardly aged at all. They just kind of had like a a couple yeah, just of some extra wrinkles. Just extra know? eye wrinkles and then they died. And it's like they lived <laughs> long full lives. She didn't even live a full life. And we no. haven't talked about her death scene. No, I guess we should. That um, was the funniest thing I have seen in years. <laughs> again, we saw this in the theater, and the audience was pretty put out by it. Um, 
But so again, we're told early in the film that supermodel lady has a calcium deficiency, right? So calcium deficient women, when they reach later in life, they develop osteoporosis. Osteoporosis is a debilitating disease. That what she had was no bonitis. <laughs> but that's what it turns into. It turns into bonitis for Futurama. <laughs> I had bonitis. My one regret is that I had bonitis. <laughs> it's true. Uh, it was just that the her death is that scene. My one regret. I had bonitis. Um, yes. Yeah, so as her, her bones age and become brittle so rapidly, she basically just kind of folds in on herself and she goes into the cave cause she's so despairing over being ugly now, which again, ugh, okay. Um, even though it's clearly shown at the beginning that she's much more than that, right? Like she is intelligent and smart and capable and she has fallen into this trophy wife role because it has provided her with a comfortable life, but she's not that person. And, and, but yet that's exactly what she falls into at the end. But she goes in this cave and then I guess one of the kids goes in or something to try and it's both do of them. something. Yeah. And then she like chases them and in the process of chasing them, she begins breaking her bones. And then of course her bones heal much she's more She's like waving her swim cover up around like she's a ghoul or something. It's, it's so <laughs> in a film that's, that's plenty full of creepy moments, which is fine. It just goes to this whole different place that doesn't hang with anything else. And it really feels, again, it, it just feels inorganic. I wanted this moment. We need this horror moment. So this can be billed as a horror film and I can put this in the trailer. So I'm going to have this character turn into this ridiculous thing and have this happen to them. <laughs> I just... Is it creepy? Sure. There's some good sound effect work with the bones breaking and rehealing. Like it's, it's whatever, but it's, it's not memorable in a good way. It's not memorable in a way that's going to be like, man, I want to see that scene again. You know, like some of the best slasher kills are, it's just, it's just bad. It's, yeah. And, it was memorable in a hilarious way. <laughs> and then like the, the big emotional payoff for the two parents, the ones that were going to get divorced is that they're basically spending the remainder of their lives together. Right. The, the promise that they made to each other when they got married is now being executed on this beach because they're spending their lives together. So they wind up like, I don't know, holding hands and being like, it wasn't so bad. And then they die. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, and for that, that kind of annoyed me too, because they, they're together and they end up aging together. And then they're like, what were we even mad about? That's not how that works. You would not have forgotten all of that. <laughs> That's just but they're old now. They I aged mean, like, so fast that their brains fell apart. It was one of those it was so heavy handed that I was like, Man, I get it. I get it. You love your wife very much. I'm so happy for you. So But this is just not landing the way that you think it is. It's more just sad. It's like, oh well they've they're They've just forgotten everything because they both have dementia now, I guess. Yeah, that's, what that's it's not how dementia works. No, that's almost what it's painted as. I, I guess we should mention that they do actually find like a notebook from a previous person who was like keeping track of what happened to them. If you die overnight, like, though, how would you fill out an entire notebook about this? And, and how would the notebook survive? Like yeah. paper falls apart, right? Like 
there because there's like a whole plot point in the movie about a knife that gets rusty really fast and then they use that to stab a guy and then he gets blood poisoning and he dies from the rust and poison that, on the knife that Ugh. enraged me because it, I, he dies instantly. instantly and you know what I, i'm that's fine you know what i've already accepted so many other stupid things about this movie but what really pissed me off was that she had to tell him he's a doctor He's chief medical officer of complicated, of complicated medical surgery. procedures. He knows how 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 this works. But she had to tell him the rust is like poison when it gets in your blood. What the fuck? <laughs> yep, sure <laughs> and you know, is. The reason she had to tell him is that otherwise the audience wouldn't have understood what the fuck was happening because you couldn't think right. of any other creative way to kill him. And and to explain it. Like and you to had to, it. she's explained it to us. Exactly. Yeah. Like that was for the audience. And, and you know, for a guy that's been writing screenplays professionally and, and ostensibly very good ones for 20, 30 years at this point, either, either Shyamalan knows that that's what he's doing and understands that it's cheap and hackneyed, or he has again, zero self-awareness, right? Like zero self-awareness. And it, it just, it, it really reminds me of those heydays of George Lucas and the prequels where just either people are trying to tell him like, Hey, maybe this is like not their best idea. Maybe we could try something else. And he's just not listening or he just legitimately doesn't have anyone in his circle telling him like, this is like exposition is written by like a second grade screenwriter or it's like a s- second year screenwriting student, right? Yeah. Like this is what you do to just get out of the scene in the first draft so you can come back to it later and come up with a better solution. Yeah. Like, like, are you like, do you realize that M night? Like this is like really basic kind of stuff. And I, it just doesn't, again, there are so many just like it's, I can't point to a single thing with this movie being wrong, but there are so many small choices being made that are just, so slightly off that it snowballs that by the time it gets to the end of this movie, it's, it's just a frustrating mess. Just like, I don't even, I don't even care what's happening because none of these things have worked together. And, you know, a lot of his films, unfortunately, you know, sort of post unbreakable really have fallen into this category for me where it's, it's not that any one particular thing is just egregiously wrong but it's just lots and lots and lots of small choices that just were made poorly and contributed to an overall experience that was negative. Um, and, and that is just so strange for a guy who at one point in his career was heralded as the savior of cinema. Yeah. Right. The guy who was going to bring us back to the old days and man, that it just did not happen. <laughs> did not happen. Um, so anything else about old, I don't know, like we could go on cause there are lots of things. It's not, there's no, really not much else to this movie though. Like the, the plot synopsis for this, you can do it in a couple of paragraphs. Like it's just really kind of insane. And those paragraphs might be better than the film script. Uh, I mean, it would save you time. Yeah. I and mean, so if you want to watch this film by reading the Wikipedia entry, I don't think that's a bad idea. It's probably okay. Um, Yeah. Uh, the other thing that is kind of weird about this and what Shyamalan seems to be doing that might further, you know, if my theory about the, the sort of self insulation of M night Shyamalan is true, is that he's basically building out his own production 
he's had his own production company for a long time, but his own sort of like production universe, right? Where pretty much everybody works for him and he's sort of doing these things on his own. Uh, his family was heavily involved in this. Both his daughters worked on this film um, with, with in fairly significant ways from what I understand. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like he's trying to sort of spin up this Shyamalan production you know, the Shyamalan like family, family approach, band. <laughs> the Shyamalan family band. I mean, the Partridge family slash. He seems Shyamalan like such a production. good dude. Like, I'll I'll yes, be honest. I, he he really does yeah. seem like he's a nice person, and I hope he keeps making movies. Like, it's fine if I don't like any of them because they're not very good. But I I hope he keeps making movies because at the very least, you've never seen this before. <laughs> no, I, that is very true. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why his name is such a big part of the marketing of these movies now is because you're really going for what's he going to do something now? <laughs> unique, right? Yeah. It's like, what is, what's he got up his sleeve this time? And I, I feel like that's both terrible, but also perhaps one of the few things that may keep his career going. Like I feel bad for him that his career has to continue going with this. Um, or, or in that vein, because, you know, I, I want to see him come back to just telling highly original, well-produced stories, you know, and I feel like he wants to do that. And I feel like he's trying to do that, but it's just not coming together in that same way. And, you know, maybe it's because he doesn't have the cachet in Hollywood that he used to. That's possible. Um, or maybe it's just because his, his goals as a filmmaker have changed, right? Maybe he's not moving in the same direction as he was at one time. And that's okay too. Um, but as you said, it doesn't mean I have to like his output. It doesn't mean I have to look at his films. I'm still going to see all of them. Like that's, you know, at this point I, I bought in to the, the Shyamalan cinematic universe. I'm going to keep watching. (laughs) Shamaverse. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think a filmmaker like Shyamalan, maybe that's what it is, is that even though he has, pretty consistently failed at executing his vision for quite some time now. He's one of those directors. And honestly, at this point it is rare that is trying to produce original screenplays in Hollywood, get them distributed on a large scale, you know, like that kind of stuff just doesn't happen that much anymore. Um, I think there are more people coming up who are going to be doing that. Um, we talked about it before we started, but I just watched everything everywhere all at once by the Daniels. Um, I, I did enjoy their Swiss army man, although I didn't, I didn't love it back when that came out, but um, everything everywhere is, is, is a truly incredible film experience. Um, not perfect. Again, like everybody talking about it being like an ultimate film. I don't know about that, um, but it is, it is a truly unique experience made for relatively little money. I mean, it's like 25 million. But just a just a phenomenal film. And so I think there are people who are coming up in a post Shyamalan Hollywood that are going to be capable of producing highly original work like he once did and, and is apparently still continuing to try to do. But he he's going to have to do something to sort of regain that former crown if he ever really had it. That's the other question is if if he ever really, truly had that crown, because if you look beyond the sixth sense. There's not a lot, right? There's movies you could debate are good. And they're probably better than others. 
but I don't know if he's had a really true slam dunk after the sixth sense. I would put unbreakable in there, but that is not a popular opinion. No. Um, I don't, well, I mean, there are people that love unbreakable, but there are a lot of people that don't. So yeah, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Like I said, I'll still go see him though. I'll give him a shot because you never know with M night Shyamalan, the next one might be the one, right? And maybe that's it. Maybe he's, <laughs> maybe he's, uh, you know, the aging baseball player who you, you go to see at the ballpark he's, because he's turning might, into he like, might hit a home run this time. He's turning into like the Star Trek rule of movies. Like every, every third movie from <laughs> M night Shyamalan might be a good one. <laughs> You never know. Is it Nemesis or is it First Contact? <laughs> uh, who knows? Um, yeah, it's 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 sort of a mystery, and maybe that's part of the fun too. Maybe it's the meta game of figuring out if this is a good M Night Shyamalan film or not. You know, going taking in my M Night Shyamalan bingo card and saying, "Oh, mysterious location. We got that. What do we got now?" You know, I don't know, but. Uh, so yeah, old, uh, as much as I, I can say that I was excited to see it, and I was once I realized that it was out and we had a free night, I, I can't heartily recommend it. Um, if, if you've seen previous M. Night Shyamalan films and found them enjoyable, this certainly falls into line with those, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. But with this one, if the premise of watching people age on a beach and seeing at least some of the effects that might be plausible with that scenario. If, if you really just want to see somebody's take on that, then this movie will kind of give that to you, but there's really nothing else to grab onto. The characters are weak. The performances are marginal at best. Most of them are just outright bad. Um, and, and the, the twist such as it is, is unsatisfying and does very little to close the film in a satisfying way. So, most of the things that you would traditionally go to a Shyamalan movie to see, this movie doesn't really have them. Uh, it has pieces of them, artifice of them, right? But, you know, it's it's the fascia on the front of the building, but the building is still very much under construction. And and that in and of itself probably isn't enough to sustain you. At least it wasn't for me. Yeah. All right. Well, if anybody wants to reach out and and inform you that Hitchcock is still alive and well in the form of M. Night Shyamalan. Where can they do that? Um, I encourage you to reach out and talk to me about Alfred Hitchcock or M. Night Shyamalan or the doppelganger. (laughs) Are they the same person? (laughs) Um, You can find me at Baskinator on Twitter. And if you want to tell me just how wrong I am about M. Night Shyamalan, and I undoubtedly am, because he is a highly successful American filmmaker, and I am just a humble internet man with a podcast and too much time on his hands. Uh, I get that. And you can reach out at tbaskin at Twitter. Uh, of course, together you can get us at FP's Theater, and you can email us at failurepeace at gmail.com if you have questions or, I don't know, other stuff that requires more space than a tweet. Uh, but in any case, thanks for hanging out while we chatted about M night Shyamalan's old, uh, a film that while problematic might still give you a little bit of that classic M night Shyamalan vibe if you're so inclined. Uh, but we will be back next time to discuss another failure from Hollywood's past and hopefully to figure out if it's still worth your time. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Bye.